Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie. Hey, morning, Annie, and morning, listeners. This is Marcus. Yeah, that's right. And in the, we're going to quickly take you across to uh, Carlton Gardens, where we've got some of those extinction rebellious people. How are you, Michael? I'm good, thanks, Danny, and I've also got Max here with me. Who I haven't been involved in everything. He's been involved in more of the actions over this week. How you doing? G'day. How are you? G'day. Congratulations. Can you hear us Yeah, we can hear you. Congratulations on your inventive, disruptive tactics for the environment. It's been a hoot, actually, Annie. Yeah. Um, the highlight for me was um, the the coal mining barons dinner in the moat outside the National Gallery. So turns out that moat's about a metre deep. and <laughs> So we had to raise the table and the chairs up so we were above water height. But uh, we were all... A bit like our... Tuvalu, really? Yes, exactly. Our plates of coal while the, the tide's rising and uh, we, we didn't care. We were quite happy with our coal. And you're keeping the coppers on, your, on their toes? We've got definitely <laughs> just having a big chat with the cops then, um, and they're they're from um, all the outer suburban stations at Frankston and so on. Um, they've just said they've run out of shifts with the city ones. They've had to pull them in from all over the place, but they've been fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the disco uh, uh, moves yesterday. Tell us about that. Is that you, Max? Did were you part of that? Um, yeah, yeah, the disco disruption that happened yesterday and and on Wednesday as well. I I, I went to both of them. Um, I was really blindsided by those actions because I I saw them on the program and thought, oh, that'll be a fun little action, like twenty people dancing through the streets. And then more and more people just kept showing up while the moves were being rehearsed or taught. Um, and then it was two hundred people going. And it was actually more than two hundred. I, I was yeah. Facebook living at Annie, and I stood on one of the the highest spots in the street and counted. And over 350 people went past doing the, the disco group. Yeah, and, like, it's, people in the city were just stopping and watching and filming and nobody could really be angry, uh, to be honest, because it was just so cute and hilarious. Um, but actually quite disruptive because we'd stop in the in major intersections and do the dance for the whole time before moving on to do it at another intersection. <laughs> You'd count this we as... Are, mm-hmm, sorry. sorry. We, we are any... Um, trying to find a balance between the, the disruption and getting the message across. Um, so at these actions, for example, there's people going around in front of the, um, the held-up cars with signs saying, uh, we're sorry, but just five to ten minutes or three minutes in many of the cases. Um, 
and just letting them know it, it's not a permanent block, but but it's a bit like it's inconvenient if um, if you're standing on a train line and there's a train coming at you 100 kilometres an hour and I push you off. That's inconvenient, but it's a lot better than the alternative we're facing. Yeah, exactly. And this is a global uh, action, isn't it, this week? It is. The whole worldwide um, extinction rebellion um, for a whole week. And uh, you're just preparing yourself for the next fabulous uh, instalment. It's a nudie run. <laughs> yes, it's still time for people to get down here. It's 10 or 10.30. I think it's 10. Yeah. 10, um, 10 people are going to be painting themselves from 10. It's um, it's not actually totally nude. It will be just down to the knickers and so on. But um, it's just saying, look, we're, we're so exposed with this. Um, and again, trying to get a bit of fun and, and art into it. Uh, so those that are uh, up to it are going to be um, doing the nudie run. Good on you guys. We congratulate you. We take our non-existent <laughs> hats off to you. <laughs> Thank uh, you very much. Yeah, Thank thanks, Danny. It's, it's great what you do there at 3CR. But, um, yeah, so um, you can still... This is this is a week to try and raise attention, but um, for anyone who's concerned about the climate issue, link to Extinction Rebellion and keep going. It's not just this week. It's ongoing and, yeah, and it's urgent. Join us next time. Thank you. Join us uh, blockading the IMARC conference later this month. <laughs> Thanks, guys. From October the 28th to the 31st, some of the worst climate criminals will be gathering for the International Mining Conference, IMARC, at the Melbourne Convention Centre. Blockade IMARC is an activist alliance committed to putting a stop to the mass destruction caused by extractive industries across the globe and the harm they cause to communities and ecosystems. We need your help to be part of this blockade. Find out how at blockadeimark.com or check out our Facebook page, Blockade IMARC, a 3CR supporter. Oh, that's good stuff. Yeah, the Extinction Rebellion uh, protesters, and they seem to be in good spirits coming into, what's today, the sixth day? Yeah, it is. It, and as it was, a, a week of action. Uh, and it, as you were saying, it's a, it's a great thing to have uh, a bit of comedy and uh, levity around in such a serious event. And it really has flawed the um, established order, I'll have to say. Yeah, well, they've been kept on their toes, as the uh, boys were saying, and they they say they were having a nice old talk to the police. Yeah, that's exactly right. What is it? The sunny side of the coppers. Um, we're going to move on to the. Uh, our, um, we've been looking at uh, a couple of local issues, and one of them is uh, the uh, funding for the or the lack of funding for the Darabin Ethnic Community Councils. So I got to speak to Sophia. They've uh, re- recently not been given funding for their admin officer, and uh, the local ethnic community leaders are pretty angry at the insult, since they believe DEC, uh, that's Darabin Ethnic Communities Council, is doing work that gives legitimacy to uh, Darabin Council in, a, in these areas, in the refugee area, the welcoming to, uh, uh, to uh, the citizens and also the support uh, and the needs. But anyway, talking to Sophia, she gave me a real insight into what the... Uh, Darabin Ethnic Community Council does, and uh, then she tells me what's what they intend uh, to uh, do to sort of change the situation. 
Okay, Sophia, you're from the uh, Darabin Ethnic Communities Council, and I'd be really interested to get an understanding of what uh, the council, when, when the council started and why it started. It started um, at the end of 19... Uh, around about 1980, some, sometime around there, maybe a bit earlier, and it started off as the Northcote Ethnic Communities Council. It was started up uh, with a group of people who wanted to protect and advocate for the communities, the different community groups within Northcote. Yeah, because there's a lot of people from different backgrounds and That's it's right. changed over time, hasn't it? It has. There has. There's been a lot of the elderly have passed on, um, but there's quite a few diff- different groups still. There's new new people coming in. So it's originally all... it would have been, say, Greek and Italian? Italian yes. Yeah. Yes, definitely. But it's as as I said, there are a, a, a wider variety of people from different places now too. Definitely, it's full of life, yeah, full of culture, full of culture, and that's exactly what uh, the uh, ethnic communities council was con- uh, connecting to. That's right. We we actually represent over one hundred and thirty different community groups within the city of Darabin, and they're all different diff- from different parts of the world. And they've obviously felt a real need. And uh, uh, and a connection with this council because they have particular with, needs with Darabin Ethnic Communities Council, not with the Darabin Council. No, DEC, no, yeah, sorry, yes, yeah, with, with DEC. DEC. We'll yes. call it DEC. Yeah. So people have actually have been actively using the council DEC to uh, get across their uh, social needs, economic needs, and I'd say political needs too. That's right. We've had, um, I'll give you an example. When the Nepalese earthquake happened, the community group came and approached us and said, we need to do a fundraiser to send money to help them. So we organised a fundraiser and we got quite a lot of money for it. Um, and it was really good. And we got our, all our different community groups together and we all supported it and we auctioned things and it was good. It was a really great community effort. And that's just one of the, one of those. And then We've done other different things together and help oh, each other. Oh, lots of things. I've been looking at <laughs> the things that you've done. I mean, even down to the uh, uh, doing fundraisers for the uh, people affected by Ebola. That's right. Yes, we did that too. Yeah, that that's extraordinary because uh, one that that has entered my consciousness. I'll have to say, I find it a really disturbing thing. But I don't see a lot of other people really noticing a lot of these things that are affecting people in other countries. So how does the council work? Who who are on the council? Well, our chairperson is Surian, um, and he's from Sri Lankan background. I'm the deputy chair, and I'm from Greek Pontian background. Um, then we have different... Um, we've got a Nepalese um, as a treasurer, and we've got different other groups with, within um, as a steering committee. All oh, right. So people uh, from Congolese put- background, um, South African. I'm just trying to remember. Um, um, Irani, Baha'i. So there's quite a few different oh, ones. It's just extraordinary. So and, and looking at the things that you've done, uh, not only have you uh, created cultural events or worked, and we're talking about Darabung Council here. You've worked with the council to d- create really quite exciting cultural events. You know, like the uh, food and wine festival, but also things like the uh, backyard food festival, taking pe- backyard carpets, yeah, yeah that, those kind of things. Um, but you've also done um, other kinds of things like uh, memorials 
the for com- the, the commemoration the, the our mem- uh, monument for yes that monument um, we I've um, I was actually looking at that for since two thousand and seven working with the council. In 2011, we started working much more with the council to get this happening because it's important that we were getting refugees from overseas and we were getting people who didn't know where their families had passed away. Now, my family comes from a background... My grandparents were genocide survivors. So I, I understood, I felt their pain. And it was somewhere where we wanted them to come to go somewhere where they can actually reflect and have somewhere where they can think of their families. Um, and we needed a venue, somewhere for them to go. And that was one of the things that we thought of, to, to have a monument where they can actually go and reflect and have a commemoration. And each community has been doing that f- um, since 2016. We've been doing that for the monument. We did this earlier on um, when we did for the UN um uh, for the UN um, uh, for all victims of genocide, the, the convention that they signed, and so what we've been doing that for the, on the 9th of December, we had been doing that since 2011, but in 2016 when the monument was erect, uh, put up or installed, um, we've had other community groups come and do it during throughout the year at different times. And of course, it connects con- completely with. Uh uh, First Nations people. Oh, definitely. This monument is the first of its kind in the world uh, where it recognises all victims of genocide and also recognises the Aboriginal genocide. Yeah, it's, it's quite fascinating. Um, and, th- you know, there's a whole range of other things, and like forums, you, the, this array of forums that you've put on, very definitely. interesting. Definitely. We've, um, we've had where there's been um, the, ra- the racial, where, where there was... Um, Sorry, I can't remember um, When there was a lot of problems in regards to a few years ago when they were talking about having their ID, everyone had to have their ID with them and all that. So we we lobbied the government, we lobbied, um, we had a meeting, we had a lot, of, um, a lot of feedback. We really pushed this because it's not, I mean, who, we just can't work on the fact that we have to ha- all have to have our IDs with us, and it's a security. This is not our freedom. We need to fight for our freedom, and this was just against it. So we fight for things that we see that are wrong, and they, they destroy um, our own freedom, our own speech, and like liberty. So that's what we do. Now, there's another aspect to what you've done, which is you've, in a sense, you've. Uh, your uh, deck has actually uh, deepened the uh, responsiveness and nuance of Darabin Council's response to its community by actually doing things like creating um, a passport to the facilities of Darabin. You've also done things like uh, created material that goes into welcoming people into their citizenship. Oh, yes. Right. So you've yes. been, your deck has actually been uh, very important to the uh, relevance of Darabin Council. Oh, I'd very say. much so. We're an extension to what they offer. Um, with the cards, with um, what we did was um, we had different little cards and, and I was the one that actually was part of the It's such a clever idea. Citizenship ceremony, and what was it was just an introduction of what Darabin, Darabin's people. We had um, different. 
there were different types of cards and different um, series, I suppose. And it was some of them were just all the animals of Australian animals. Some of them were about Darabin, about who actually the new, the older communities, the first ones that came in. Then we had a lot of different things. And what we did was we we gave that to our new citizens. So it was the next, and it was something for them to actually see that there was, you know, this was a welcome to City of Darabin, to our country. Um, to our area, but also this is a bit of our history. So it was really great. Now, in regards to the passport, um, we had a refugee when we had the asylum seeker, and we had quite a lot in Darabin. And we found that um, a lot of them had nowhere to go, and a lot of them had missed their families. So what we did was negotiate it with the council. We, they gave us part of the downstairs of the intercultural centre, and we went and got couches, tables, computers. We also had a fridge and it was always stocked. We invited the asylum seekers to come in. They would talk, email to their friends or their family. They would come in. We never asked questions. They were able to take whatever food they wanted. We just made sure it was always stocked There was and because people were starving. So we did that and then we found that they didn't know what facilities were available? So we decided to do the passport, where we negotiated with some commu- with some some service providers to provide free for them. Um, in f- for example, the um, the uh, reservoir pools. So yeah, I noticed yeah. that. That was a really so, clever idea. So we were able to go. So it gave them something to do, especially if they weren't able to work. Um, you can't, and it keeps them healthy. It keep, apart from that, it keeps them their mind going because you can't expect people just to to get out of detention and just leave them there. You, you've got to do something with these people. You've got to help them because it's everything's completely strange to them. And so what we did was we did that, and we provided service all the service providers that were around that were able to help them for the doctors, the all the emergencies, and all that. And what we did is we had a photo on it. It was like a passport to the city of Darabin. And um, it, was, it worked out really well. People, we, they loved it. And we took photos and we gave it to them. We had a ceremony and it made them feel that we actually were welcoming to, to, our, to our community. And that was very important. Um, we did that. We also, um, through our networks, um, we found... Um, Clients, well, for my, for example, for me, I've got clients that are looking for people to work, so we married them off with um, some of the asylum seekers and other people that we knew in the community. We helped them find work, um, so it was very important because we can't just expect people to just to get out of the, you know, the detention centre and then what do we do with them? They've got to have a life. Well, it's unreasonable. And uh, the other thing, uh, the real, the nuts and bolts, the guts of why we're actually chatting, I mean, I I feel privileged to discuss and understand more about what DEC's been doing. But the real reason for why we're discussing this is because in the last round of uh, funding from Darabin Council, uh, the usual sum of, small sum of money that's given to DEC to uh, employ an admin person has uh, you, you failed to actually get that funding from council. That's right. And um, we've actually been saying that it was unfair because they've put us against um, service providers. That We are not a service provider. 
we have volunteers. We Yes, we did pay someone to do the admin, but that was because we were working in partnership with the council. So whenever they needed, um, inf- you know, advice or they needed to It's consult. also intensive work. Oh, it is. It's a lot of work, especially when you have to rally up a lot of different community groups and having to, to speak with them. And I'm a volunteer and so is so is most of the board or all the board is. And so we had someone that we paid to do all that extra work. Yes, we as volunteers did a lot of things, but we just can't do this all the time. So we needed someone there. So they've stopped our funding, but they've put us in a category with service providers. Can you tell me a little bit, or do you know much about what the service provider model is? Well, it's basically they're a company. They're a business. They they pay their staff. They do have some volunteers, but they have a lot of staff that are paid. They have people, yes, they might have an office in the city of Darabin, but the people that work there are not actually, most of them don't live in the city of Darabin, so they don't identify with who we are. And so... What kind of services do they provide? They offer welfare services, but we're not, we don't do that. We actually advocate for a community for if there's something wrong, if they've got a problem. Um, and I'll give you an example where we had um, one young, one, one community group came and spoke to us this a few years ago where they had a young man who was part of their community. His parents had passed away and no one bothered to look into him. And they, no one saw him for a very long time. They found him. They, the only reason they found him inside the house, he passed away, was because the grass, the garden had been looked after and the neighbours started feeling, well, there's something wrong. No one looked into this person. And for us, it's important the council looks into these things, provides some sort of service where there's people that are isolated to make sure that there's someone there as a volunteer, that's fine. So what you're talking about is community, um, uh, making community a real community. I agree, yes, definitely. And that's what DEC has been doing. We've been working with our community groups and building that, that trust, that rapport, and a lot of other things where we had um, an African community coming in complaining that they were being discriminated against because of their colour. So we did a lot of work we and we've approached the council to say well you know let's do other things in regards to in- employment let's don't employ these people but get them to be trained to know about how it works within the Australian community whether how it how, because they've come from overseas and it's not just with the African community it's all the or everyone that comes here their, their systems are different so it would be great if we had if the council would give them six months to teach them you don't have to pay. It's a volunteer thing, but to train them, to teach them how it is to, to work in Australia within the Australian rules, to know the, the Australian culture. So you're actually saying that DEC is a non-confrontational, unfrightening setting for people to come to, to voice their concerns, their worries, uh, things that can actually g- b- blow out of proportion uh, but in actual fact can be negotiated into uh, reasonable outcomes for everybody concerned. You've said it really well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, well, yeah. so what are you yeah. expecting from Darabin Council? I mean, I'd want an explanation for why you didn't get your funding, really. Well, it's not it's not transparent. They say it's transparent, and we were like, well, what were the criteria? And apparently um, the way we, we did our, um, our funding application is not what they wanted. But it's like, well, okay, that's fine. But you've put us against service providers who have tons of money behind them and they've got they have actually got someone that they pay to do all these funding applications we're a community group we're completely different where we are residents of Darabin we look after our people and that's what the most important thing is so what has the council said to you um that they can't do much about it now it's it's happened um they won't tell us who what they looked at in each one um, in the applications, it's just that I've been told that we were really low, low down from um, in their else. tick box. Yeah, in their, in tick, their box. tick boxes. And I've just said that they they got it wrong. They got it wrong because we are not a service provider. Completely wrong. You can't just pack up your bag and your uh, your kit bag and go away because no, Darabin can't actually do without you. That's very true. Our members are very upset about this. Um, we been told that we can't get any more we can't get the funding this year because it's already gone and um but we're just looking at different avenues for us at the moment mm. so there's next year but uh, also uh have you received a letter or any explanation from any of the councillors have you made any uh have any of the councillors said anything to you um interesting that one of the greens councillors um was we were told that um had no idea what was going on which is a lie they knew exactly what was going on. So, mm. Well, this is a real problem. Yeah, you can't deny something that it comes into you in, in, in your meetings. You can't say you just don't know about it. Well, then you'd have to think about uh, the suitability of these people in their roles. I agree. And at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we, they got voted to represent us not their own petty, their own uh, personal um, agendas. They're not there as career career politicians. They're there actually to represent us and to do what we want them to do, not what they want to do or what the the most popular popular thing is for the day. All they, this all this grid of service provider model. That's right. Uh, arrangements. Uh, so where everyone's supposed to fit into some sort of but bureaucratic we, form. Well, we're not. We're not a bureaucrat. We're actually a community group. We do have a board. With runs on the board. You, you've you done stuff. That's right. <laughs> although although we did ta- we did say that we don't perf- we don't have any KPIs, which I went, what? No, 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 but you've done all these things. I know, but for them, we don't tick the box, and that's the, the saddest part because that's not what we're there for. We're there, there, we're there to help the, our community group, a multicultural community group. And we've included Aboriginal group and the mainstream um, communities too. So it's not just one, one group. No, it's quite clearly not just one group. You are advocates for important community issues, including the support of the aged care by the Darabin Council. That's right. And to yes. save Preston Market and... Everything that is actually something that the uh, community are That's active right. about. That's right, because we we represent what the community wants, and and I'm really sad to say that some of these councillors do not represent what the community wants. It's their own agenda, and that's the saddest part. So there's going to be a fight on. Um, 
We're hoping that there's no blood. (laughs) 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 But, um, yes, we're going to go to council tomorrow on Monday night. What time is it? Six o'clock, I think it is. Mm -hmm. And we would really encourage a lot of, as as many people to show up on that day. We'd um, like to make sure that the councillors... It will be about 5.30, won't it? Yeah, if they can be there, 5.30 would be great. Um, at the council offices, uh, the council chambers, which is on High Street, Corner of High Street and Gower Street in Preston. Um, it'd be really great to just to show them that, show the councillors that we're not going away and we need we mean business and we have the community backing. Okay, thank you very much, Sophia. You're welcome. Thank you for your time. This is Ari Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. So if you're uh, on uh, in Darabin, uh, make your way to the council offices on Monday and be part of uh, the noise that's going to be made around uh, the problems in funding. Uh, that uh, was uh, a chat with Sophia from the uh, from the Darabin Ethnic Communities Council. You're back on uh, Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Marcus, and you've got something interesting to relate regarding uh, uh, local councils and how they're dealing with their uh, constituents. Yeah, from the Darabin Council. Now we now we cross over to the Hume City Council. It's a topic we've uh, covered uh, regularly in the last uh, few months on this show about the handover of uh, yeah public open space to private corporate interests. And this uh, one's got to do with a reserve, Seabrook Reserve in Broadmeadows, uh, which part of it the council says um, they're going to hand over to become a twelve million dollar NRL centre of excellence. Now the council's claiming that ninety percent of the site's going to be retained. Um, for public space, it's a reserve where a local rugby club currently plays out of. And these are commercial comp- companies. Yeah, it's yeah. an elite. It's I mean, they be... can go and buy land and uh, all this industrial land that needs to be fixed up. They don't have to take our public spaces. Yes, yeah, it's a place where yeah, the locals and the kids play rugby for the uh, Northern Thunder. Rugby club, it's going to become yeah, the NRL Centre of Excellence. It's going to be yeah, home to office space and the Melbourne Storm uh, women's team state league. Um, so it's going to be yeah, a place where the locals use it for rugby. It's going to become an elite sporting uh, precinct. And the Broadmeadows Progress Association's come out and they've objected to selling part of the reserve, they say, for housing. And they had no idea that a, a road and car park's going to be built straight through this reserve. Oh, and, and uh, is there any information about, like, they say sell, is it going to be sold or is it going to be a peppercorn amount? I mean, you know, who who, who could tell with these little deals that are being made where they go, does it say? Well, it doesn't say it's a, yeah, going to be a $12 million centre of excellence. No, no, no. This is what they're going to build, right? Mm. But they don't say how much public land, which is being hand o- handed over to these people, are actually is going to cost them. I mean, what we're finding, especially with things like the public housing stock, it's it's a minuscule amount of money, and this is all this smokescreen about oh they're going to build this expensive thing for these elite people, and we should be really happy. I mean. Pfft. 
Well, the council claims it's going to be retained for the uh, local club matches. Um, I think we'll wait and see on that one. Well, you know, if there was a public oval, it would be too. But anyway, by the by, well, that's a watching brief. Yeah, we'll follow the story up and we might get the Broadmeadows Progress Association on in yeah. coming weeks. We've had them on before. and Yeah, we'll find out what yeah. they've got to say about it. Yeah, And Marcus, you went down to the uh, Peter Norman uh, event, which is uh, held now annually outside the Melbourne Town Hall. This was on Wednesday, last Wednesday. Can you tell us a little about what uh, happened? Yeah, I was down there at the Melbourne Town Hall for the 51st... Uh, yeah, commemoration. Yeah, we were coming up the 51st commemoration of Peter Norman, of course, running second and standing on the dais with the two, uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos. But, yeah, Wednesday, October the 9th at the Town Hall. Uh, that's Peter. what's celebrated as Peter Norman Day in the United States, and that's the day of his uh, death. And uh, he's a revered figure over in the United States, but the story here is only just getting out, and that's thanks to the good work of uh, Joe Toscano, 3CR's own just Joe Toscano, who's brought that story to, to light and the brave stance Peter Norman took on that day, October 15th, 1968, the Mexico Olympics, when he uh, was approached by John Carlos and Tommy Smith when they were walking to the dais, and they they asked him, do you believe in God, do you believe in human rights? And Peter Norman said he did to both, and he sourced the badge, the Olympians for Human Rights badge, which he uh, stood on the dais and uh, paid a personal price ever since. And, yeah, I was down at the event at the Melbourne Town Hall. And we're here at Peter Norman Day, and uh, do you want to tell us why you're here today? Well, I'm here today uh, to recognise the tremendous uh, effort that was achieved by Peter Norman way back in Mexico. Um, A man who uh, was ostracised virtually for the rest of his life for standing up for what was right and what was proper. Uh, It was a disgraceful chapter of Australian sporting history uh, and one wonders, uh, given that uh, Peter Norman's record still stands, one wonders uh, what he may have achieved if he hadn't have had his uh, athletic career cut short because of internal politics. And you want to tell us why you're here today? Um... I'm here because I just feel that um, Peter Norman wasn't recognised for his actions, um, for what he did during a time where there was a lot of racism in Australia um, and the fact that he was ostracised and after what he did was standing with the African-American men. I think um, the fact that they're commemorating his memory today, I think it's amazing and they should still continue to do that because they didn't do it when... When that happened, when you come back from the Olympics, you know, um, it was unfortunate how he was treated and not recognised for what he had done. So, yeah, I'm just here because I'm, I'm here to support and I think, he's, I think what he did was amazing during that time. The 9th of October was declared in 2006 by the United States Track and Field Association as Peter Norman Day. Uh, this morning, a statue to... Uh, Mr. Norman was unveiled at the Lakeside Oval Gate 1, Gate 1 of the Athletics uh, Track and Field uh, Australian Athletics, and they were forced to eat humble pie after 51 years of ignoring Mr. Norman. It's quite an interesting statue. It's his pose on the dais, taken from this photograph. Um, But the important thing is 
the statements which are placed around the statue. There's the picture of the three of them, the three men. There's the declaration from the United States Track and Field Association making the 9th of October Peter Norman Day, a few days after his funeral, he, so on the day of his funeral. And there's also another statement uh, um, explaining what he did, all right? It's not a glorification of Athletics Australia, it's not a glorification. It basically states the facts, and the facts are very simple. And what we do here is I'd like in about two minutes to go round and ask each and every one of you to speak and why you've made the effort to be here today. Now, it's a very simple thing. 51 years later, we are not here to honour a man whose 200 metres record in Australia still stands 51 years later. We're not here to honour a man who would have won the gold medal at the 2000 Sydney Olympics. We are not here to honour his athletic prowess because many, this country has produced many athletes over many decades. But what Peter Norman did was that he took that next step. He did what most of us don't do every day of our lives. After the race was run and he unexpectedly came second, Mr Tommy Smith, the gold medalist, and Mr John Carlos, the bronze medalist, Afro-Americans who were involved in the Project for Human Rights campaign to highlight what was happening across the United States as cities burned regarding race relations in the United States, they asked him, do you believe in universal human rights? Do you believe in God? And he answered yes to both questions. And, they, and he said, I will stand with you. I will stand with you. And he obtained from the uh, rower, I think his name was Mr. Hoffman, the Olympic, United States Olympic rower, a badge which said Project, Olympic Project for Human Rights. And he wore that badge when he stood on the dais with his fellow brothers when they took this protest which was beamed worldwide. And those of us who are old enough to remember will remember what an extraordinary image it was. And 50 years later, it still stands as one of the top 10 images of the 20th century. Not because they are Olympic runners, not because they came first, second and third, but because they took steps for universal human rights. And they all paid a heavy price, a very heavy price for what they did, including Mr Norman. A Melbourne boy, born in Melbourne, died in Melbourne in 2006, and when he came back in 68, he was vilified by the media. He was ostracised by the Australian Athletics Association. And although five times he ran qualifying times for the 200 metres, he was denied access to run for Australia at the Munich Olympics and to rub salt into the wound, even in 2000, when this country was celebrating the fact that it was holding the Olympic Games 
in Sydney. He was not even invited to take any official capacity or invited to anything official at the Sydney Olympics. And when his friends from the United States Track and Field Association asked him why he wasn't there, he said he hadn't received any invitation. So they invited him and he accepted the invitation and he stayed with them during that. It's only recently that the very organisation which was responsible for his ostracisation, the Australian Athletics Association, has taken steps to rectify what is one of the most extraordinary actions taken by a human being in the athletics field, not just in this country, but the world. And this morning, after a lot of pushing and prodding and a little bit of money from the Victorian government, Peter Norman's statue was unveiled outside Lakeside Oval, gate number one. An extraordinary thing about the statue, and I've noticed that members of his family have turned up, but the extraordinary thing about the statue is not the fact that he's standing there looking in the distance as he is in this picture, this, this iconic picture, but what is written round the statue in three separate plaques. There's a plaque that has the iconic picture. There's a plaque that has the proclamation by the United States Track and Field Association who proclaimed the day of Peter Norman's funeral, the 9th of October 2006, as Peter Norman Day, a day which is recognised around the world, but only belatedly recognised in this country. Belatedly. 50, it was only at the 50th anniversary that the Athletics Association, the Australian Athletics Association, took responsibility for what they did. So we are moving forward. But the thing about Peter Norman's stand is each and every one of us has the ability to be Peter Norman at any moment. Each of us are witnesses to injustice on a daily basis. Most of us, including myself, turn our backs and walk away. What Peter Norman demonstrated is that it takes extraordinary courage not to turn your back when you see people being vilified, not for what they've done, but what they are, their race, their gender, their sexual orientation. And this is the great lesson. And this is a great five words which will continue to reverberate long after most of us have gone. I will stand with you. And in a multicultural society, in a multicultural city like Melbourne, where we have our problems, and in many cases manufactured, it's essential that those of us who believe that all human beings are created equally and that we all need to have the same opportunities in life stand up. And that's why I honour Mr Norman. Like we do every year, because I will stand with you. It's not me, it's each and every one of us. So I'd like to open the forum. Off you go. Why are you here? Oh, why am I here? Tell us who you are. Oh, um, my name's Florina Sayuli. Um, I'm here because um, I think what Peter Norman did is was amazing. You know, um, 
I wasn't born at that time, but um, I've seen a lot of things on the internet about what he'd done, and I learnt about his story, and I just thought I wanted to come down to here today in support and to stand with you guys. So, yeah, thank you. Here because um, uh, I think it's terrific what, the, what uh, Joe and the other people have done in having this committee f over a number of years to celebrate quite an heroic... Um, uh, act of bravery by uh, Peter Norman to stand up for injustice and we we use the word legends and heroes, throw them those words around too freely these days, particularly on the sporting field, but when somebody actually sacrifices uh, so much to take a stand for what's right, it's something that should be celebrated and uh, his, his memory should be, uh, should be recorded for us all. My name's Jane and I come to these because I have great respect for Peter Norman, for his dignity and his integrity for doing something that I believe was uh, really important in setting a great example of humanity. So I feel ashamed of the actions of the official sporting bodies here. I am really sad that we didn't get to witness more of Mr Norman's sporting excellence. And uh, I thank Joe Toscano and everyone involved in the campaign and I'm really pleased to hear that finally, after 51 years, there is suitable recognition. Uh, my name's Peter Link and um, Peter Norman was of my... He was... Peter Norman was a man of my era. He was a fantastic athlete. Um, I have great respect for his athletic ability, but not only that, he was a great humanitarian and I'm here to honour him. And I am somewhat uh, disappointed that there are functions happening in our official town hall and um, we are standing outside and I think the town hall and the fathers-at-be of the City of Melbourne should have done more to honour this great humanitarian and an athlete. Thank you very much. Uh, Peter Norman's record uh, has never been equalled by an Australian, let alone bettered. And yet he was ignored for the next lot of Olympic Games despite having the appropriate qualifying times. And then for 1976, uh, Malcolm Fraser was so disturbed by the lack of medals... Uh, achieved by Australia that he instituted the Australian Institute of Sport. He didn't seem to realise the irony and the um, hypocrisy of it all because what it meant was that Australia which is promoted as a very proud country uh, particularly keen on sporting achievements, often above all else, had denied recognition to one of its greatest athletes. If you've been to Mexico City, and I've had the privilege of doing that, if you walk around the streets, you'll find visitors there gasping for breath because of the high altitude. So to achieve the target he did um, was absolutely remarkable. So instead of fostering talent here, what did they do? They des decided 
that violation of human rights would trump athletic achievement. What an irony. Absolutely extraordinary. And Peter, of course, was, was recognised by the uh, two athletes who stood on the podium with him and they both came to his funeral and acted as pallbearers. Uh, Tommy Smith, the gold medalist, and John Carlos, uh, the um, bronze medalist. And the fact that he was invited as a guest of the United States track and field team to the 2000 Olympic Games, where shamefully Australia ignored him, shows how he was held in high esteem and his, his legacy fortunately will live on, particularly now that there is more publicity for him. The, um, the authorities or the Olympic committees and all this will all be well and truly forgotten and all those um, people that were on the committees and everything, their names won't be remembered. The man that will be remembered for all time will be Peter Norman. The Olympic committees and all that mean nothing. It's the athletes who count, not the petty uh, bureaucrats and all that. The athletes prove themselves on the track and by their actions in general life. This guy was a true champion in all respects of the word. This is Ari Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. Hello, I'm Duncan Graham and this is Over the Wall. After an 18-month break, I'm back and today we'll look at what's been happening in industrial relations and retail and fast food since I've been away. When we last broadcast on industrial relations in early 2018, there had been some breakthroughs in workers' rights, with penalty rates being restored to the new enterprise agreement at Coles and Domino's deciding to give up on its unsuccessful fight for an agreement, instead reverting all of its employees to the relevant award. No small part in both these victories belonged to the Retail and Fast Food Workers' Union, or RAFWU, led by Josh Cullinan. At that time only recently formed and with a small membership, especially compared to its main nemesis, the Shoppies Union, or SDA, it had become a giant killer. But that's nearly 18 months ago, so what's been going on in the sector since then? Well, as it turns out, quite a bit, and here's some examples. After reverting to the award in January 2018, Domino's had a change of heart and one last attempt to at and one last attempt at an enterprise agreement in mid-2018, which it didn't achieve. So the award remains the industrial instrument, and workers are much better off. However, a class action was launched in July of 2019 against Domino's, 
to recover lost penalties and other benefits for the period between the expiration of the previous enterprise agreement in 2013 and the reinstatement of the award in 2018. Over 1,000 previous employees have joined the class action and the recoverable back pay could be as much as $250 million. The case hinges on an ambiguous part of Australian industrial law and asks this, what happens when an enterprise agreement lapses? Are employees still covered by that agreement until such time as a new agreement is agreed or are they protected by the award? For a number of years now, employers have been generally able to convince the Fair Work Commission that the lapsed agreement continues to apply at least until officially terminated. These situations have sometimes been referred to as zombie agreements, dead but still prevailing. However, the Domino's class action will argue something different, and also it will be heard in a different venue, the Federal Court, whose judgments have a starry decisor's power over the Fair Work Commission. If the class action succeeds, not only will there be a rare windfall for previously ripped-off workers, but the industrial system in Australia will have had a major shake-up. The Fair Work Commission will be mandated to return workers to awards when agreements lapse before new agreements can be made, thereby delivering increased power to workers and their representatives in negotiating agreements by putting time on their side. Beyond that, back pay, which has been routinely ignored by negotiating businesses, will become a live and central issue. And the better off overall test, or boot, which demands that projected agreements must deliver benefits over and above the relevant awards, will be strengthened. With this case, the Federal Court will also have to sort out another bugbear of the contemporary industrial scene. That is, the obligations of the franchisor and the myriad franchisees. Domino's will undoubtedly try to shift the blame and cost to the individual franchisees, but will they succeed? This is shaping up to be a landmark case, whichever way you cut it. Elsewhere in the fast food and retail industrial scene, we have seen two recent examples where employers have had to take their lumps on their enterprise agreements. First off, at the start of September, Kmart's new agreement was rejected by the Fair Work Commission. Officially, the agreement was dismissed because of irregularities in the way the employees' vote on the agreement was handled. Not only were about 400 previous employees allowed to vote, but the voter registration process was terminated early, leaving some current employees without a vote. However, the Commission also indicated at the hearing that a provision locking employees into using REST Super, administered by the SDA or Shoppies Union, meant that the employees were not better off overall, as REST is no longer one of the better performing super funds. Further, one commissioner also ruled that the agreement was unfairly trying to restrict the right of workers to refuse unreasonable overtime. So it's back to the drawing board for Kmart. There's also been a lot going on at McDonald's. A zombie agreement had prevailed at McDonald's from January 2017. In autumn of 2019, Xavier Kelly, a McDonald's employee, sought to have the agreement terminated and for back pay, 
of over $200 million paid for that period. This compelled McDonald's to create a fresh agreement as a legal defence. In May this year, McDonald's revealed their new proposed enterprise agreement, in which for the first time, penalty rates were included. However, Rafwu still reckoned the agreement would fail the boot, and prepared to argue so. Meanwhile, the employee vote on the agreement took place in May and June, and all sorts of problems appeared. According to Josh Cullinan at Rafwu, the online vote would proceed normally when an employee voted to endorse the agreement, but when they attempted to vote no, the website would often fail and show an error message. Despite this, and despite senior staff trying to convince workers that a no vote would lose the money, and despite the tender age of most of the employees, 20,000 voted no against 30,000 who voted yes. Then, two weeks ago, perhaps looking sideways at the voting stuff-up at Kmart, McDonald's withdrew its new enterprise agreement from consideration by the Fair Work Commission. How this will affect Xavier Kelly's termination request and a possible case on back pay is still unclear. Well, that's just some of the shenanigans in retail and fast food for the year and a half we've been off air. Now we're back, expect more details on these interesting times as we hope to talk to key activists and unionists to find out more. Until next time, I'm Duncan Graham and this is Over the Wall. In the interests of transparency, I declare that I'm a paid member of the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union.
and come on, if that posed a serious threat to the future of the human race and the flora and fauna with which the human race shares the planet and treats so carefully, would so responsible a man as Andgas pursue so suicidal a policy? Of course not. The irresponsible Her Most Gracious Majesty's Queensland Socialist Government, praised for responsibly approving the Adani the Planet coal mine, has lost all its accumulated brownie points by announcing it would close a 700 megawatt coal-fired power station 10 years earlier than planned, 2028 instead of 2038, only pumping out beautiful coal-fired harmless pollution for another 10 or so years. Causing poor Angus to reach for the smelling salts. After which, largely recovered, he promised the government would do all it could to prevent fossils being squeezed out of the energy market, pushing baseload generation out prematurely or without a plan for like-for-like -like replacement is very dangerous, he said. Uh, when you say like-for-like, -like, Angus, do you mean replace coal with coal? Well, that's as like-for-like like as you can get, and everyone knows what I like. So in the light of all that, the fading light of all that, what do these anarchists think they're doing? Not that it matters. This is a government meeting its climate commitments in a canter. And scuttled them and Angas and the team are certainly committed. While those disruptive lots preventing good law-abiding citizens going about their lawful business claim they should be committed for murdering the planet. What nonsense. OK, OK, our pollution continues to climb for the, by the year, but don't panic. They've got it under control. We're cantering. Truth from Scuttle Them and Angas and Truth in Advertising, one of those ubiquitous ads for so-called weight loss programs where they provide the pre-prepared food, offering all sorts of apparent savings, but with the very quick, listen carefully, or you might miss it, rider, cost of food extra, which is the big rip-off, as I imagine they must charge about $20 a kilo for something you could buy yourself for about two. And in this ad, a happy, happy losing weight customer gushes, everything's done for you. You don't have to think about it. And I thought there's truth in advertising, because if you thought about it, you wouldn't give them your hard earned in the first place. The that appalling Hoonsun, please explain, award of the week to the rugby official after claims a grand final umpire, that they call them referees, decision may have cost the loser the game. He made the correct decision, uh, but in the wrong direction. <laughs> rugby official, you're that appalling Hoonsun, please explain, award is on its way. Although Scuttle then made a bold bid for the award with direct quote, True Blue Aussie's sovereignty is at risk from a negative globalism that coercively seeks to impose a mandate from an often ill-defined borderless global community and worse still, an unaccountable internationalist bureaucracy. Aimed ironically at winning the hardened heart of that appalling Hoonsun, even if she couldn't understand a word of what he said. I'm not sure he understood it. Though interesting, when it comes to world's best practice for worker productivity, for instance, remember the maritime dispute, our workers had to match Singapore, or corporations zigzagging capital around the world in milliseconds, they are ardent supporters of globalisation. 
But when it comes to little matters like the earth frying to death, that's negative globalization, ill-defined borderless, unaccountable internationalist bureaucracy. Interesting. Not suggesting there's any hypocrisy. Then again, someone should explain to US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, what impeachment means, as he called for a senator from his own party to be impeached for criticising him, which Donald declared was treason, the worst treason ever. Showing the explanation should also include the meaning of treason. For balance, he's also called for a couple of Democrats to be impeached as well, thereby not clarifying his ignorance of the word, or at least its meaning. But those Donald demands be impeached must pay for their disloyalty to him, and therefore to the US of treason. For Donald puts great weight on loyalty. The Kurds have been loyal to me, best loyal ever, ever. Loyalty is great to see. I must, but pity I must sever. But they've done what I hired them to do, so the need for loyalty is through. Because if I can hire them, I can as easily fire them. And my loyalty is that in Istanbul, the trample that poor tower is continually full. So those whom I thought were US of loyal Kurds are now job done, just disloyal terrorist turds. Worst turds ever, ever. Speaking of plutocracy, big economic guru Josh Friedem Iceberg showed his and the government's financial commitment and strength and power by demanding the usual suspect big banks pass on the latest interest rate cut in full. He didn't want them to rip people off, he said, which is a bit rough given that's the only reason they exist and shows what an economic guru Josh is, but... Gee, what a surprise. The usual suspect big banks told Josh to get stuffed, explained they couldn't cut interest rates. Well, why explain? They just didn't. But clearly they were forced to retain some of the cut to meet the cutting the interest rate fee, which, good news for the struggling banks, the way interest rates are going, will soon exceed the rate cuts. So with every cut, the banks will be forced, reluctantly, to increase interest rates by the difference between the one and the absolutely necessary fee. These are financial truths that Josh doesn't seem able to grasp. This week, direct quote, banks should never make their profits at the expense of their customers. <laughs> then Josh, how else are they going to make them? The worry is he's the treasurer. Uh, yet when rates do go up, you put them up two days earlier by more than the increase. We ask the usual suspect banks. Yes, 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 very considerate. It gives our cherished victims, uh, uh, sorry, our cherished customers time to adjust and two days to become aware they will also be liable for the increasing the rate fee. Josh warned the banks that next time they ignored him, he would get really tough with them. Really, really tough. And we've shown with the evil trade union movement how tough we can get. He had the bank boardroom shaking in their Swiss leather shoes. As a conciliatory measure, they passed resolutions thanking the government for getting tough on evil unions. True blue was he also getting tough on evil Iranians breaking the US OBS unilateral world laws, jailing Reza Debashi, an Iranian scientist studying in True Blue Aussie for thirteen months. That's jailing him for thirteen months, pending packing him off to the US of to face the full force of the unilateral world law, banning anyone doing any business with evil Iran. But then Two days
days after two troubler Aussies were released by evil Iran for what at face value seems to have been naively flying a drone over the wrong spot, Reza Debashi was packed off to evil Iran, despite the fact he had been doing, obviously more than 13 months ago, doing business with his native country, contrary to US of unilateral world law. Yet our Attorney General Christian Christian Potom and Minister for US of Foreign Affairs Marie's Payne for Workers assure us there is no connection between these two events. And we've already talked of our respect for truth in government. But we've also talked of the US odds of Donald's hatred of disloyalty. So what will they, he, think of our disloyalty in not setting this evil criminal to face the full wrath of US? of unilateral world law. Worst disloyalty ever, ever. And Donald's offsider, Mike Dollars and Pence, has also been in the news as submissions are made over Troublewazzi's proposed Dear Baby Jesus Freedom Bill, with Mike's progressive policies in Iowa when he was governor being quoted as an example. But sadly, by these anti-dear baby Jesus people who claim, claim Mike's love the dear baby Jesus law, and how's this for distorting a truly God-fearing man's intentions, made it easier for gays and lesbians to be refused service, risked economic, social and political consequences by favouring the rights of one group over another, showing not that Mike was wrong in upholding what the dear baby Jesus wants, but how these sinful, sinful people have triggered the need for a bill to protect decent, God-fearing people here, like Erica Betts on the bosses and Tiny a bit more for the bosses and Kevin Ann screws the workers and other fun, fun, fun people. Finally, the only problem with this bill is they still haven't worked out how to protect the lovers of the dear baby Jesus without including all those all those pagan religions that don't love the dear baby. Look, if you've got an answer, listener, they'd love to hear from you. Good morning. Yes, and good morning to Kevin. He's completely correct, of course. And you're back with Annie and Marcus on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR. And we've got Dr. Noah Pazil on the line. G'day, Noah. How are you? Good morning, Annie. How are you? Good. And uh, we're going to be talking about the vexed issue of uh, Turkey and its desire to create what they're calling a safe zone in uh, Syria, but which is really an incursion on Kurdish um, territory, really, isn't it? It is indeed. I mean, this has been long threatened. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, the surprising aspect of it is the U.S. withdrawal at this particular point. I know the reading some of the press of the last few days and reminding myself this was um, that the U.S. Had, or Donald Trump in particular had threatened or issued a withdrawal notice back um, this time last year or about this time last year. So, uh, But, yes, there doesn't seem to be any catalyst for why the U.S. would would, would withdraw today rather than you know, uh, last week or last month. Or, yeah, know, I was going to ask you that um, because, I mean, I know that um, uh, Turkey uh, historically uh, has uh, constantly, uh, well, from some of my reading, that uh, has constantly had these uh, uh, tensions between what they would consider that they'd consider that the Turks, uh, the Kurdish, were 
uh, left-wing reactionaries, basically, and that they should need or have always needed to be oppressed in the modern era, anyway. Yeah, well, they, you know, the the Kurds of uh, Turkey's state after its uh, formation in the 1920s, modern Turkey, uh, sought to uh, Turkify the Kurdish population, um, and the Kurds have resisted that. Uh, as they have resisted Arabization in Iraq, uh, for example, and um, they've waged a long war for aut- autonomy or struggle for autonomy, both both politically and militarily, have fought for their rights to remain um, you know, autonomous or semi-autonomous within Turkey, and uh, that's I mean that's a long struggle, and the Turkish government see the SDF and the um, Kurdish forces in Syria as uh, allies of the Kurds in Turkey. And so this is an attempt to break that uh, uh, sort of link between them and to distance the uh, Syrian Kurds from the, the Turkish Kurds. Um, but what? Uh, no, that's, not, that's not the surprising part of this equation. The surprising part is the sort of irrationality. Maybe that's not surprising, uh, given what we know now. But the irrationality of Donald Trump's decision, um, you know, in the middle of an impeachment campaign uh, with a whole range of other things going on, uh, this seems like a foreign policy madness. Uh, he's lost support from even some of his staunchest uh, allies in the Republican Party, like Lindsey Graham and others, um, over what seems to be a you know, really unnecessary move. Uh, and the other side of it is the devastating impact it's having on uh, on people in Syria. I mean, this is already uh, reports are that 60 or 70,000 civilians have been affected by this. Uh, thousands, hundreds or possibly even uh, thousands have died. Um, yeah. You know, this is a full-scale Turkish military incursion into another country, and that comes with a huge human cost. It's interesting too because uh, I know that we get very limited. Uh, uh, I mean, we're seeing pictures on the screen, so uh, what those pictures are is just a limited amount of time in in um, and space in a, another country. But it, it, I mean, with the voiceover and the footage, it seemed a bit hard to work out why who the Turks were bombarding because nobody was fighting back. Um, reports I read this morning have suggested that uh, they've been um, that they've taken particular. Uh, they've made the Turkish military has particularly targeted um, Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic forces in northern uh, Syria in two or three um, key areas: um, a town called Tel Abyad. Um, and, a, and a couple others, which are seen as key strategic sites along the border. So they're being very, very targeted in what they're doing at the moment. But, I mean, those areas have large concentrations of uh, civilians. So, um, you know, the thing about the um, the Turkish, uh, sorry, the Kurdish forces is that uh, the, this is not a state military that's sort of... Um, detached from the population. These are effectively militias that are drawn from the people, and that's partly why they've been so successful in their fight against uh, Islamic uh, State. Is, yeah, that's uh, right. 
you know, these these people were drawn from the very populations that they were of people that they were seeking to or, or protecting. Um, and you know, the, there's been a lot of literature in some of the more progressive press um, and media about the um, sort of the the social political policies and economic policies of the Kurds in this region. I know, it's quite impressive, um, isn't it? It's really it is, quite yeah. impressive. It's a you completely know, different way of structuring uh, community interaction around power. Indeed, and, you know, things like... I, I mean, I don't want to say it's a perfect scenario. There's certainly... But it's a um, different one. It's a different one. And, you know, it's, it's around, um, you know, that they have... Um, across the Middle East region where gender and sexuality and um, um, inequality, uh, economic inequality are much higher um, and usually dealt with in in very reactionary ways, the Kurds have shown a very different approach to these issues. And, you know, one of the things about the um, SDF forces is that they're made up of large numbers of women who... And on the front line of the fighting, and there's yeah. a, you know, there's a and there's been a lot written about that um, in terms of how it represents a different a, approach to to gender relations amongst Kurds than amongst Arabs in other parts of uh, the Middle East, and that might be the, one of the reasons that the U.S., especially a reactionary president like uh, Donald Trump, uh, but also one of the reasons why most Arab uh, leaders might be um, less sympathetic to the Kurds. But in saying that, the uh, Arab the Arab League and most Arab leaders have really condemned the Turkish incursion into Syria, which I, you know, I found at first a little bit surprising. But when one thinks about the threat that the Islamic State uh, posed to the stability of the region um, and the way that the Kurds have effectively been the front line that um, defeated and continue to um, uh, to sort of uh, um, prevent uh, a, a sort of a, um, an upsurge of I, IS power, um, one can understand why there's so much uh, trepidation around what's happening in northern Syria at the moment. If ISIL was to regroup and start its campaign again, uh, the potential for instability in Syria and Iraq and elsewhere would again increase uh, dramatically and I think that's really a major concern for a lot of people. Oh, it's very peculiar, isn't it? It's very peculiar. Yeah. There's two two issues that are, one one issue I'd I'd like to go back into the past in a sense before the modern era in a, uh, yeah. the Kurds historic I mean I've read some stuff around uh, the way the nation states have been uh, drawn up in that area and a place like Syria was actually non-existent in a sense. Uh, in its modern form, yeah, yeah, and so the Kurds themselves quite they're they're aiming for a particular land uh, area to live that they want a place that's called their own, and I guess yeah. the Armenians who were massacred in Turkey. Uh, forgive me, because apparently that didn't happen, but it did happen, sort of thing. Uh, these places actually did exist before the nation-state borders that we uh, perceive now. That's true, isn't it? Yeah, uh, I mean, 
so um, yes and no. Yeah, right. Um, the Ottoman Empire was a really uh, quite complicated set of relationships between different groups. Right. So some of those people didn't have political autonomy in the way that you know we we would sort of understand it today. But the um, system that was set up during the Ottomans gave them a great deal of cultural and social autonomy within a particular framework. So, yeah, the nation-states didn't exist. Um, the Kurds, the Arabs, the Turks, the Armenians, the the Jews, many parts of the, the sort of Ottoman Empire lived together under a system called the Millet system, which gave political power to um, elites that were... Um, um, uh, d- determined by Ankara, or by actually yeah. not by Ankara, by Istanbul. Um, by yeah, it was Istanbul. The, yeah, by the Ottoman Emperor or, or Caliph or uh, Sultan, and then, but within that, there were particular relationships that allowed autonomy or semi semi autonomy within it. So laws around marriage or um, um, inheritance that could be used, inheritance, land ownership, a whole range of other things um, were determined by the cultural group and the sort of traditions of those cultural groups. As long as they did not come into conflict with Turkish or Ottoman um, um, interests, they were allowed to to continue. And so this, the system was a, a real patchwork of both political um, on one on the one hand and um, cultural. Um, um, autonomies or, or power, and so it was a system that worked very well for a long period of time. It, it, you know, it had its problems, but in the 19th century, uh, as the Europeans started to pressure the Ottoman Empire, there was a rise of Turkish nationalism, very much uh, mimicking European nationalism around the nation state and centralising the state around a particular identity, and that provoked Arab nationalism, Armenian nationalism, Kurdish nationalism. And, and, you know, nationalism is about the ownership of a nation-state or the possession of a nation-state or the nation and the state coming together. And so in this context, there was a great deal of tension within the Ottoman Empire between the different groups. And it also happened in the Austrian-Hungarian Empire in the 19th century, uh, places like Italy and elsewhere, um, so it wasn't unique to the Ottoman Empire, but it, you know, in World War One, uh, when the Turks were surrendered, um, you know, that set off a whole series of events that led to the Armenian genocide and also to the um, formation of what we know today as on Turkey. Now, would that lead you to believe that uh, what's going on now, uh, Erdogan and the Turks uh, would have a chauvinistic? approach to why it was appropriate for them to behave in this manner? Oh, absolutely. The, you know, uh, the Turks see the Kurds as a, um, a fifth column or a, you know, insurgent group. They call them terrorists. Uh, there's, there's, I don't think there's a great deal. I mean, my own knowledge of Turkey is not huge, but I, I've been there a few times. I've spoken to Turkish academics. I've followed a bit of the events. I've read a, a couple of theses on Turkey, PhD theses on Turkey, and mark them. Um, so my sense is that there's not a great deal of pub, Turkish public support for the Kurds. Yeah. So this won't be this this the events in uh, that are going on now won't be dealing Erdogan with a great deal of domestic uh, problems. No, but w- uh, would there be some reason for why it would be 
useful to him to be doing this? Mm, I can't say for certain, but we do know that government... I mean, Erdogan's basically um, taken power in an internal coup over the last three years. Yeah. Um, you know, he's become author- more and more authoritarian as time's gone on. And we saw it, one of the reports I read yesterday said that internal critics of the uh, military incursion, about 120 academics, intellectuals, artists have been rounded up and locked yeah. up in the last... 48 hours. Right. Um, so, you know, that's not unusual. Though. His government's been doing that for a number of years. So we have a PhD student at Macquarie who um, fled um, Turkey because of her criticism of Erdogan around gender policy back in 2015, 2016. Yeah. Um, and she came to Australia as a result and is continuing her studies here. So, you know, that's the sort of climate that uh, uh, Erdogan has created. So... Um, what, what, do you, what do you think? That, what, what do you think is going to? I mean, we're coming to the end. So, even though this is a very interesting discussion, uh, I mean, they're part of NATO. What, what, what are they expecting to happen here in this uh, well, landmass? I, mean, I mean, my sense is this, the Turkish military is a very powerful one. I think yeah. it's the third, second, third largest and most powerful military in NATO, according to some reports. I don't know. Um, it's it's it, it's a very. Um, I think they're expecting to go in um, quickly and hard, um, achieve their aims of pushing the SDF back the 32 kilometres in, you know, to create that safe zone and to get out. Um, with them, and and I think that's what they're aiming to do. And you know, as we know from um, especially US. Um, um, approaches to war that have been similar in like Iraq and elsewhere, those sort of shock and awe type campaigns come with huge civilian casualties. Oh, it's unbelievable. It's, it's actually, unbe- it's almost medieval in its uh, conception. So, well, I mean, this is, this is Turkey fulfilling its foreign policy wish. And, the, the, you know, the thing that's really surprising or unsurprising is the way that the US is sort of um, given a green light to do so. Yeah. At the same time, Trump's saying, if he, if you know, the, the confusion over U.S. foreign policy is is really highlighted in the statements of Trump this week that have been back and forth over this issue. Um, the guy is, you know, I don't know if it's a, 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 if he takes his position um, consciously as a as a sort of strategy or whether he is a, actually. A schizophrenic, but the policy and his his statements on Turkey this week have been in, entirely in contradiction with each other. Yeah, you know, with himself, just over and over again saying one thing and then saying something completely contradictory. And the White House and the Pentagon, Pentagon have made issued statements all week that seem to be in contradiction with each other. There is no coherence at all. And maybe that's the way you run a government when you're um, someone like Donald Trump. I don't know. But so he doesn't know, believe in hard. government, maybe. <laughs> That's probably Yeah, it. maybe not government. But it's a bit like it us is, here now at the moment. They yeah. just don't believe or, or understand how government works. <laughs> no, well, but they're, mm. oh, they're in power. And you know, it, it is, it's incredible the amount of support people like that still maintain despite the evidence of their in, inability to govern. I know, it's extraordinary. It's really it terrifying. 
<laughs> it's like going yeah. down a Salem track with uh, faulty uh, skating blades or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've seen it here in Australia. I know we're, we're running out of time, but, I mean, the last few months we've seen a, a real confusion over economic policy, a whole range of statements in Australia that demonstrate that this government's economic policy is, is, is you know, sort of um, uh, uh, um, impossible to understand, fail, forward, bankrupt, if yeah. you want. Hopeless. And yet they still claim, and there's still a great deal of, uh, I think, sentiment <laughs> that they, they're the best economic managers in the, for the economy. I mean, it, it is... Hilarious. It, it is extraordinary. Yeah, how, Yeah, they're able to maintain this facade of knowing what they're doing when, you know, you just have to open a paper and read their statements on it and you think, well, these people don't know what they're doing. <laughs> the Reserve Bank is saying they don't know, know what they're, they're doing. doing. Anyway, we better yeah. leave it there. That, that's a happy note to, to finish it on. <laughs> oh, well. Yes, I wish it was a happy note. Maybe next time. Maybe next time. Talk to you soon. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Annie. Bye. Bye. And uh, if you also join uh, uh, the... Um, uh, concern about what's going on in uh, northeast Syria. The uh, Australian Kurdish Association is having a uh, rally uh, on the steps of uh, State Library today at 4pm uh, and they're asking people to come and support their call for uh, um, Turkey to uh, turn back uh, not to uh, broach their borders. They want people to uh, be aware of what's going on. Uh, so four o'clock at uh, State Library Steps. That's it, Marcus. That's it for another edition of Solidarity Breakfast. Yes, and uh, we're going to go out with uh, the um, Footscray Park song in commemoration of public land being siphoned off for corporate uh, greed. So the council have a Footscray Park master plan A part of it is to hand over public land So Melbourne Victory build a soccer academy To say it's disused and passive isn't reality A large part of the park is gonna be lost Given to a private company for no cost The precious floodplains, what they will be leasing Less spaces, our population's increasing The park's for the people, not for profit, thank you Locals pay rent, but Melbourne Victory won't have to The second richest sports team in the country Why should they get public land for free? Three soccer fields are what they want to introduce The western lawn would mainly be for private use A beautiful view is what they're gonna spoil A hybrid toxic won't be good for the soil They want to build 10 floodlight towers there Now it's a place only a select few can share Council said the land was disused, that isn't fair They're the ones that left it in a state of disrepair The grounds don't get used, we see through the lies Cause how can a view be underutilised? Some kids don't play sport and go for the serenity So they'll be excluded from this great amenity Losing the space for many will be devastating Where will the open space be for future generations Council should live up to people's expectations And protect one of Footscray's only open spaces News of reckon the park is hard to hear It's been around
around for over a hundred years. It was built by the people of Footscray, who take the natural beauty of it away. This land should never be up for grabs. One of the biggest Edwardian parks this country has. So to mess it up would be twisted. Footscray Park. Is- You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.